Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. If you are a regular uh, joining, a joiner of our daily journey through God's Word, one question in the heart at a time, you know that we are here to answer your questions on the Bible. If you've got biblical questions about uh, biblical prophecy, maybe a tough question or two has been lobbed your way by a skeptic or a non-believer. Maybe you've always had a tough question about the Bible. It's been percolating in the back of your mind, but you've never been able to encounter a place where you could get those questions answered with a minimum of personal embarrassment. Well, that's what we try to provide for you each and every day. Any question you have about the Bible is welcome to hear on a reason for hope. Maybe uh, you could use some insight into how to apply the principles, the precepts, even the practical examples we find in the Word of God, the current uh, uh, challenges you're facing in life. Maybe you'd even like to uh, talk about some of the current controversies that can swirl about us, both inside and outside of the church. We would be more than happy to tackle those questions for you. Uh, But where we go is entirely up to you. Your questions determine uh, the content of each and every edition of our webcast and broadcast, joined here by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richard. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you're joining us on Reach Radio, you can email us at your own pace and time at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Note no fancy numbers or alternate spelling. Questions is plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. That's available, of course, during and after the broadcast or before, depending on how close you are to the event. But if you want to join us face-to-face, we also have our church website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. The C-A-L-V-A-R-Y christianfellowship.com website will have a list of different links, you click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to ccftucson.online.church. You don't need to remember that, but note it sent you in the right direction. There we will have a countdown to not only the next broadcast as it will be going live, but also the present one if you're joining us from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. every single weekday. Note as well that at the right-hand side of the screen we'll have a chat box, much like our YouTube page on A Reason for Hope, or our Facebook page, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, the advantage of our website and why we encourage you to go there first is because, well, they can't ban us on our own platform. We want to make as far sure as we know. Yeah. Yeah, we want to make sure that if you have access to the broadcast that it doesn't become familiar or preferred through venues that uh, aren't reliable. We've had trouble in recent history and want to regularly inform you of that both for humorous reasons and information purposes. So, note if you want to join us we encourage you, calvarychristianfellowship.com, click on the Watch Live tab. But if you prefer Facebook and YouTube, it is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson or A Reason for Hope, respectively. The advantage of those venues is that you'll be notified when we are going live. But if you could set a notification for 5 p.m. in the U.S. or wherever that translates to in your neck of the woods or listening to previous broadcasts, they'll be available for you there as well. Note that the standard for the questions we'll be receiving are sincere Bible questions. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. 
Bible, meaning that the substance of the answer you're looking for is in the Bible, not just you mention the Bible vaguely and then just toss it to us like some hot pancake. Yeah. And on, of course, if you have a question, you get bonus points for phrasing it in the form of one, as we say, the Jeopardy bonus, yeah. if you will. So note all of that, our standards. And of course, if you have questions about other religions, we'll answer it to the best of our ability. Uh, perhaps cult groups or aberrant beliefs regarding the or against the Christian faith, maybe even uh, issues of current events and how they tie into Bible prophecy, like we'll be getting into yeah. briefly, or the lack thereof, we will welcome them on the broadcast as well. Just note that sincerity is what's going to be key. Biblical relevance is also just as key, and questions, of course, are what we're here to answer. But uh, I hesitate to say even that. We want to make sure that God speaks more than we do. So why don't we start with a word of prayer and see where he takes us? Yeah. Father, I thank you so much for your mercies and your grace to us. Thank you, Lord, for your presence here with us. Thank you, Lord that uh, you've exalted your word even above your name. That's how important it is to you. And Lord, we want to have that same sense of respect and honor for your word that you, in fact, do. Lord, it's a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. You tell us that your word implanted is able to even transform us from people dead in our trespasses and sins to part of your forever family. So Lord, uh, we pray your word would go forth in power, uh, that it would accomplish everything you sent out to do and not return void as you promised. We pray, Father, that we would uh, do our best to get out of the way and simply let your word speak simply and uh, allow you to receive all the glory for everything that is going to go on here. The questions asked, the answers given, uh, may you be honored. And at the end of this hour, may we know you a little bit better because we've spent time in your word and in your presence through the ministry of your spirit to the glory of your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. That is true. Now, in regards to biblical prophecy, or is it? Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to talk yeah. about? Yeah. Uh, prophecy fulfilled or not. That should be a regular feature uh, on our broadcast. A couple things uh, came up uh, before airtime. Some people had some questions about them. And so uh, we want to make sure that uh, we deal with these things because they do come up uh, quite a bit. Uh, one of them uh, has to do with a current event. Uh, I was uh, perusing our Twitter site. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at scottr4htwitter.com and uh, keep up to date on uh, the uh, encouraging words we try to pass along, the comments on prophetically significant events, uh, some insights into the Word we try to provide for you. Uh, but a very interesting uh, platform uh, that you find there on Twitter, because uh, one of the things that you'll note is that there will be topics that will be trending on Twitter. That means that the majority of people on this platform at a particular time are discussing this particular subject. Well, imagine uh, my uh, shock and surprise when I looked in the uh, trending topics, and one of them was World War III. Well, that, uh, I guess, uh, to use the uh, parlance that uh, kids today use, that's what you call clickbait. Uh, I couldn't help but click on it. And the story that it related uh, uh, tied back into a uh, potential visit to Asia by Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Nancy Pelosi indicated that uh, although she was going to be departing from a tour of Asia today, uh, there was one item on her agenda that was still up in the air, and that is whether Nancy Pelosi was going to visit uh, the nation of Taiwan. Well, Taiwan, uh, as many of you know, uh, is a very uh, interesting flashpoint uh, in terms of world conflict because China 
the 800-pound economic and military gorilla on the block, considers Taiwan part of their territory. It's a breakaway republic by their lights and shouldn't be a separate nation. And so by Nancy Pelosi uh, saying that she was going to visit Taiwan, that definitely agitated the powers that be in Beijing, so much so that uh, the Chinese state-affiliated media site, Hu Jin uh, online, posted this on Twitter. If uh, U.S. fighter jets escort Nancy Pelosi's plane into Taiwan, we consider that an invasion. The People's Liberation Army then has the right to forcibly dispel Pelosi's plane and the U.S. fighter jets, including firing warning shots and making tactical movement of obstruction. If ineffective, then the order will be given to shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane and her fighter escort. Well, uh, very interesting uh, saber-rattling going on there. When asked uh, about this, uh, Joe Biden's press secretary commented uh, that uh, the president doesn't uh, give uh, direct input on the itinerary of members of Congress which didn't seem to me to be a super bold way of saying, look, uh, members of our Congress can go to any nation we want, and uh, if you don't like that, you need to back down a bit. Uh, it seemed to be kind of a concession on our part, but all of that is just to say that's where the World War III rumor came in, and there were people who would ask questions saying, does this constitute what Jesus warned about in Matthew chapter 24 when he spoke of wars and rumors of wars uh, being a prophetic sign. Well, the, the passage in Matthew 24, I think, is an important one for us to understand uh, because uh, it can, in a sense, allow us to be able to uh, get a grip in terms of our uh, approximate uh, uh, closeness to the return of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was asked by his disciples, when the end of the age would take place, he said, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I'm the Christ, will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, that last line that Jesus speaks there is one that is really important for us to understand, because when he uses the term sorrows there, the word in the original language carries the idea of labor pains. And we know that labor pains increase in frequency and intensity as the big moment draws near. And so uh, when uh, a war or a rumor of war, a, a, an incident of saber-rattling takes place, uh, we need to ask ourselves, is this something that is a heavenly heads up for us? Well, I think the answer, Sean, uh, would be yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that Jesus uh, said that these things would happen. He gives us the caveat that's saying that uh, these things will happen, but the end is not yet. We need to keep that in mind. There have been wars and rumors of wars uh, from the time of Jesus' first coming, even up till the time we live in now. Uh, that doesn't mean that we're looking at the last days in the end times. There is one difference, however, in the here and now that uh, makes uh, things very distinct and different from the time that Jesus was here the first time and the times we live in now. Uh, for approximately 1,800 years, there was no such thing as a nation of Israel, either occupied or unoccupied. The uh, Jewish people had been in the diaspora, as it was known, the, the great dispersion. 
But in 1948, Israel became a nation again. And uh, we do see prophetically that uh, Israel and its return to the land is incredibly significant in a prophetic sense. And so we talk about wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation and so on. There does seem to be a general uh, applicable point to all of that, that uh, there is going to be an increase in conflict and uh, in conflict even uh, with global imp- implications that will uh, tip us off to be in the last days in the end times. But the most important thing that we need to pay attention to is the fact that Israel is back in the land. And I think the wars and rumors of wars that we need to be paying attention to more than anything else are the ones that directly apply to Israel, don't you think? Yeah, and if our attention goes elsewhere, then we're either spinning our tails or following a rabbit trail. But the point being made is that if we're going to seek prophetic significance, obviously a global phenomena of wars and rumors of wars is what Jesus has in mind. But the epicenter, as Joel Rosenberg oftentimes puts it, of God's prophetic calendar needs right. to center from that. So if we see rumblings elsewhere, it needs to make sure, is this significant or is this just the world being the world? I don't uh, consider the, well, to a point, the uh, Aztec uh, empire's collapse of prophetic significance or the change of one Chinese dynasty to another of prophetic significance. But if on the other hand I note this is the way of the world and that it's going to get worse, broad sense perhaps, but prophetically, no. Yeah, and and we need to pay attention to that because there have been those who uh, have adopted a a, a worldview called uh, dominionism uh, that uh, believes that uh, the church, Jesus' people, is going to have an increasing influence over the world for good and is eventually going to perfect this world and then hand it over to Jesus when he returns. Uh, That was a popular point of view before World War I. After World War I, it took a significant hit. Uh, when some 20 years later, World War II followed World War I, which was called the War to End All Wars, uh, the popularity of Dominion theology uh, really began to wane. But there are still those who will believe that uh, every day and every way we're going to get better and better. The Bible indicates that that is not the case. You know, Sean, there's another statement that always comes up when these issues uh, are, are raised. It's called newspaper eschatology. What is that, and why should we be wary of that as believers? Eschatology, or your study and view of the end times, is read into current events as opposed to read out of Scripture. When we call that phenomenon newspaper eschatology, that's what we mean. You're jumping at every single slight suggestion of something in the news that could be associated with the Bible instead of reading your Bible and then looking at the news and responding accordingly. Right. If I take cart before the horse. So yeah, to speak. If I take an informed approach towards Scripture, then I make sure I pause. That I make sure Scripture in its entirety informs my worldview, and then with that worldview, I then take it to the world. I don't let the world set the tone, and then I read the Bible through my distorted and bloody and tear-soaked lens. If you catch the illustration. If we want to avoid newspaper eschatology, it's all about making sure the Bible comes first. Much like what Peter and I talked about yesterday, the mistake between, uh, basically the fine line between a fallacy and a good argument, a good conversation, can be just making sure you clarify the point first before moving on. If we want to have a proper handling or at least perspective on the end times, it needs to come first from Scripture, right. then to the world, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. So we, we need to be on our toes about that. And, you know, another uh, question that we were asked before airtime, a contemporary issue that came up 
that uh, runs along the same way of, of sort of reading into uh, world events and uh, perhaps, uh, well, getting a bit hysterical. Uh, there uh, was a very interesting uh, st- uh, statement made on the USA Today uh, fact check section. Uh, the headline said this, fact check, scientists at CERN are not opening a portal to hell. Now, I'm glad explain, we clarified to, that. Way. To explain that, CERN is an acronym for the European Organization for Nuclear uh, Research. It's uh, rendered in French, and so that is where the acronym comes from. But uh, you may have gotten some of the scuttlebutt on uh, Twitter or Facebook or whatever uh, uh, website uh, platform that uh, you tend to inhabit that uh, this CERN reactor, it's the world's largest and most powerful uh, nuclear accelerator. It was shut down for three years uh, in order to make repairs and upgrades to it. Uh, What it basically does is crash uh, little bits of atoms like protons together. And from this and the results, uh, learn a little bit more about the universe. Uh, But there were a number of uh, people that posted on Facebook and uh, TikTok, a a video of a woman who claims insider information that the CERN scientists are using the machine, catch this, to open up a porthole to allow demons into our world. Okay. Uh, The actual quote uh, on the post says, if y'all, I'm using the actual post here, if y'all don't know about CERN, it's a demonic evil machine that opens up portals to other dimensions, hell, other spiritual worlds, not heaven or the bosom of Abraham. And it brings in demons, wicked spirits, high evil principalities, says the caption of the post. Well, I think one of the reasons that this has uh, gained uh, a, a bit of traction here and I need you to engage with me here, Sean. But uh, uh, the, 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 the reason that I think this has gained a bit of traction has to do with the popularity of Marvel movies like the Doctor Strange series, the Multiverse of Madness was the latest uh, installation. Or the video game series Doom that was based loosely off of this as its starting point. And the idea when you see uh, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, as, as Doctor Strange waving his hands and a portal opens up and you can go from one place to another, not just in this universe, but into multiverses. Uh, seeing something out on the screen tends to get people's attention. And so when the CERN uh, Adam Smasher, for lack of a better term, was fired up again after three years, obviously there are, were going to be those who would jump on that. Uh, our point of view on this is that that is uh, an attempt uh, at clickbait. Uh, there is no truth to the rumor that scientists at CERNs are communicating with demonic entities or using the collider to open up a portal to hell. Uh, Dejan Stojevic, a physics professor at the University of Buffalo, uh, was emailed by the USA Today, and he said to create a black hole or a wormhole, even a microscopic one, and and this was another uh, rumor about CERN, that they were going to create a black hole that could uh, essentially, a la uh, the Star Trek movies, uh, swallow up uh, the entire planet if they weren't careful. Uh, They said to create one that was microscopic with our current technology in the context of our standard theories of gravity, we need an accelerator as big as the whole universe to pull it off. 
Uh, there's no chance whatsoever to create such a portal at the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, the collider uses a strong magnetic field to accelerate charged particles or protons at high energy in a circular tunnel. When two beams of these particles collide, detectors which are located around the beams record the outcome of these collisions. Uh, what they're really trying to do with this is to uh, be able to identify and codify something called dark matter, which is another thing that tends to get people all um, in, a, in an uproar. But uh, dark matter uh, doesn't really exist as far as we know. It's sort of a fudge factor that's been put into a lot of physicists' uh, calculations to make, say, for instance, Big Bang cosmology work. Uh, you've got to have this uh, unknown mass in the universe to make all of your calculations balance out. No one has ever seen dark matter. No one's ever measured dark matter. Hence, they call it dark matter because it can't be seen and it can't be measured. They just sort of assume that it's out there because their calculations can't be wrong. Uh, their Big Bang theory can't be wrong. So uh, in order to make this thing work, uh, they have to believe that dark matter, which no one has ever seen or measured or, or quantified, makes up a significant part of the universe. Uh, so since it doesn't absorb, reflect, or emit light, uh, very hard to find. Well, we could go into a rabbit trail about, uh, uh, you know, figures don't lie, but liars figure, uh, that uh, people talk about the uh, problems with a uh, literal six-day creation uh, model, but there are huge problems uh, with the Big Bang model, uh, one of them being uh, the problem of dark matter here. So uh, the conclusion of the USA Today, they rated the claim that the Large Hadron Collider was a portal to another dimension or communicating with demons or hell. Their rating was false. Uh, based on our research, they say, we rate false the claim that scientists at CERN are communicating with demonic entities <laughs> and opening a portal to hell. There is no evidence scientists at CERN are engaged in anything other than scientific-related activities. The collider cannot open portals to other dimensions. Experts said scientists use the machine to collide particles at very high energies to study matter. Well, uh, again, in the realm of the non-falsifiable rumor, uh, the response to that would be, well, that would be just what these liars would say to you. They're lying to you about what's really going on there and, and so on. Well, it's impossible to prove a negative. But does the Bible ever talk about the idea of portals or uh, entry points between this world and hell? Not the way it's oftentimes portrayed in popular culture and social media. But when we're talking about there being a way to travel between the two realms of the physical and the spiritual, we do have an example of one that will take place during the tribulation, but it's not because of a French research center. It will be because, and I quote from Revelation chapter 9, at the beckoning and instruction of the fifth trumpet, which was a judgment of God during the great tribulation, not the Great Tribulation, the Tribulation period, the angel, this spiritual entity who's classified as a messenger, is going to be given a key to open what's called the bottomless pit. In Greek, it's abuso. Right. 
Now, in this place, uh, some very nasty things are being interred, and there's passages in Peter's epistles, for example, that might give some insight into that. Take of it with a grain of salt, because it leads people into weird directions. But the point being made is, all that we're told is whatever comes out of it are still under orders. Those demonic entities will interact with this physical world, but only for five months, and will only be permitted to do what God allows them to do. And that is, of course, to inflict pain, but not death on those who don't have the mark of God. That was introduced two chapters prior. Right. So noting the point of this, I guess, interdimensional conflict, if we're going to read into it, well, that, the book Revelation tells us the spiritual component, but it doesn't tell us what that will look like from our end. It could be a freak accident. Though the judgments of God in Scripture were never a result of man's incompetence. They're never freak accidents. It was right? something that was warned. It was something that was fulfilled as it would be on paper. And the reason why I form that interpretation is because I apply the same standards with the same context to the book of Exodus. Whenever the plagues happened, it wasn't because the Egyptians uh, basically forgot to put their sunroofs out that day, and so the plague of heat from God was just the lack of shade. Mount Ed that didn't blow up and hence the darkness. Yeah. No, we're talking about something that was informed to be from God, caused by God, and as a result of Pharaoh's and Egypt, by extensions, rebellion against God. And it only went away when God was sought intercession for, not when they suddenly uh, stopped, I guess, um, forgetting to feed the crocodiles and turning the Nile to blood. And the plagues never affected the place where Israel was, only the Egyptians. So, so we, that point so we well. can't say that it was a volcanic eruption or things like this. And note as well, the term demon, I guess, needs definition as well. It means adversary, and in re reference to a spiritual entity, much like with the angel, is describing a relationship that they would have with us. Normally, angels are called as such because they're delivering messages. That's what angel means. A demon is referred to as such because they're an adversary. They're either trying to peddle a false message, a la 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and Second Thessalonians 2, or they just uh, don't like you very much, and that's the point that's being made. But when we're talking about these creatures, again, we did a study on one of our Wednesday night Revelation books and going through Revelation chapter 9 and noting that a lot of these things have been explained in the Old Testament regarding their significance. But regardless of how freaky you think these demonic entities are going to be, just make sure that it's an informed perspective on Scripture and all of Scripture and how you make conclusions with it, not doing as what we said before, newspaper eschatology. Oh, they're smashing particles together. Uh, that must be the fulfillment of Revelation 9. No. No, no. So a uh, couple of uh, current events we wanted to get to you right off the top. Hey, I uh, wanted to get to uh, this question right away. We really uh, are blessed uh, to see how the Lord is taking this broadcast and webcast and using it to literally all over the world. Uh, case in point is our good friend in Nigeria, Adani, is checking in with a question for us tonight. Uh, he asks, please, could you help me with an explanation of what Jesus meant in his statement to his disciples in John chapter 20 and verse 23? Well, Adani, that is a uh, controversial passage. Uh, this is uh, to set the context to uh, Jesus speaking to his disciples in John chapter 20 and uh, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father sent me. So I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the bone of contention. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, there's some corners of the Christian world you'll run into, Adni, where they will say, see, we have the ability in Jesus' name to tell people who's forgiven and who's not. And uh, the Roman Catholic uh, ritual of confession is tied into all of this. You confess your sins to the priest, and the priest can then bestow upon you forgiveness. They will base it upon this particular scripture. Uh, Not the the apostolic succession of that, or that being exclusive to the church, or the office of the priesthood in the New Testament. That's uh, implied. Yeah, (laughs) and uh, they would also justify the idea of indulgences, uh, that a uh, donation to the church uh, can be used to, uh, say, forgive sins or shorten someone's time in purgatory. They'll they'll point back to this passage, as well as some others. But, uh, Sean, that's a pretty bold statement. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Does that mean that if we like people, we can give them forgiveness of sins, and if someone bums us out, we can say, nope, not for you? As much as I'd like that to be true in my darker moments, no, that's not the case. What, what go, is Jesus teaching here? Well, literally go to, well, four words previously. You don't even have to go a whole verse back. It says, as a precondition of them being given this authority, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why would that be a necessary component? Because same book, four chapters prior, Jesus at the Last Supper, his last conversation with his apostles before his physical uh, crucifixion, he clarified to them, I'm going away, but you guys are sad because of that. But you should rejoice because that means I'm going to be glorified with the Father again. How could a normal man be glorified with the glory of God? Anyway, yeah. he makes this point and then goes on to say, if I do not leave, then I cannot send the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, who will come and declare to you all things that I receive from my Father. This is, of course, a summary of a summary, but read all of our, uh, Rome, our Romans, John chapter 16, to note the flow of the conversation. In short, the Holy Spirit, God, just as much God as Jesus and the Father are, are going to be, is going to be, the one indwelling and equipping the saints for every work of ministry in, I quote, Jesus' name. Now, what does it mean to do something in Jesus' name? Well, it's to, as Jesus said, and again, John chapter 20, verse 21, he said, Peace to you, as the Father sent me, I also send you. Now note, on what terms did Jesus get sent by the Father? To be a rogue deity apart from the Father and to do whatever he wanted with the power given to him, like some you know kid in a virtual reality simulation? No, no. it was to no. represent the character of God, to show the, and I quote from the first verse of the Gospel of John, we don't have to leave the book, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that Jesus goes on in conversations throughout his earthly ministry in the Gospel of John saying, I always do the things that please me, no, no, that please the Father. So if we're acting in the name of another, we're not saying my own interest, we're saying what would be the interest of the one I'm acting on. I did not come to do my own will, but the one of who sent me. And just as likewise, we're not here to forgive the sins of any as we will, but as the Holy Spirit enables us. We're acting in his name. Why? Because the Spirit was sent in Jesus' name, who was sent in the Father's name. Who are we acting on behalf on? Our whims or the whims of the only one who gives us such an authority? People can idolatize this and say, no, that goes to the church. People can distort and twist this and say, this belongs to our organization. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. 
because the only one who can forgive sins is, and I quote, God alone. And if God is acting through us, God is speaking to us and through us and enabling us according to his word and his will, then those words have weight. But if you just don't like me and say, pardon the uh, crassness of how this is oftentimes taken, but go to hell, that doesn't mean anything. But if, on the other hand, in light of the fact I'm rejecting a personal relationship with Jesus and someone tells me, you're going to hell if you continue this route, well, that has weight, not because they said it, but they're speaking it in light of what the Spirit has revealed through his word. That would be how we deal with the issue, and we don't even have to leave John to clarify that. Yeah, now is there an aspect of this that ties into Jesus' statement in uh, the Sermon on the Mount about uh, not casting your pearls before swine, not giving holy things to depraved people that will just turn and attack you? Yeah. In application, yes. Matthew chapter 7, he's making the point that we should make judgment calls, but do so consistently. If we're talking to people who don't want anything to do with the gospel, then as Jesus says, you're retaining their sins. You're saying, hey, this is between you and God. I've spoken my piece. Uh, Just before the broadcast, I've had interesting conversations with people today, but it's always my policy to give them one polite opportunity to talk to someone as if they were a, imagine this, human being on the internet. But if on the other hand they continue to double down, then in me, leaving them alone and not wasting time with someone who's either insincere, hostile, or just trying to manipulate me, I'm going to leave them ultimately to answer to that before God. I hope his spirit convicts them in time, but that's the only reason why I would leave their sins. I would retain their sins. And an example of this, even in action, you don't have to go to Matthew 5, you can go ahead to the book of Acts. where Acts 13, a great example of this, Uh, Paul and Silas in Antioch, uh, were uh, having this tremendous ministry. And it says, uh, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, this is verse 42 of Acts 13, the Gentiles begged that these words would, might be preached them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. That is sharing the, the gospel. They're showing them the forgiven. way of their sins forgiven. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. So, you know, there's, I think, an example of this in action. Uh, When we share the gospel with people, when people uh, make up their mind that they're going to uh, just mock it and uh, dismiss it, uh, to use the term uh, blaspheme God as a result of it, uh, we are not under any obligation to uh, enable them to continue to do that. We can draw a line there, and unfortunately drawing the line there and saying, okay, I've shared God's truth, the ball's in your court, Uh, If you don't uh, turn and receive God's forgiveness, your sins, by definition, are going to be retained. Uh, But if you do receive that message, they're going to be forgiven. So, uh, Adonai, I think that is uh, what uh, the Lord was getting at there. It is uh, our responsibility to go in his name, not because we have any authority to forgive sins in of ourselves, right? Right. But uh, to act as his messengers, as his conduits of this message. And uh, based upon the reception or rejection of the message, people's sins are going to be forgiven or they're going to be retained. 
So just in summary, and again, uh, Denny, I know you're going to commit these things to faithful men who will do so likewise, so you may be listening to this more than once. Let me just give you an outline, and as well, all of you listening, to note how we approach the text. Rather than assuming doctrine or tradition, we did three things with the passage. First, we didn't settle for one verse. We read the whole conversation and every detail in its proper context. He mentions the Holy Spirit first before this rite was given to them, that significant significant. Who's that? Second, we looked for its application in later verses. How is this put into action? Do we have an example of, as some people would insist, the apostles going and saying, you're forgiven, you're not, or did they only affirm in light of God's word and their actions therein or towards that being positive or negative? Were they affirming what's already there, or were they deciding on their own authority? Right. And then, of course, to understand terms like acting in someone's name, that Jesus was sent in the Father's name, the Spirit was sent in the Son's name. What does that mean? That can require some linguistic linguistic, excuse me, research, but that's how we approach the text, and hopefully you can acknowledge it as consistent and the ones listening to you also as fair. And I think that is such an important thing to bring up, Sean, because uh, there are those who say, well, but uh, my church's tradition teaches this. Now, notice how we answered this question. We didn't appeal to tradition, did we? What did we appeal to? We appealed to the commentaries of Chuck Smith, our sole authority. <laughs> no. 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 That, we that's appealed to the Word of God. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, you know, the idea of saying, well, we just do it this way, or it's always been done this way, or smarter people than you have done it this way. Uh, you can say all those things, but ultimately, uh, our, our takes on God and what it means to know him personally and what his truth is all about should come from his divinely inspired word uh, taught in context as plainly as possible. And, you know, when we do, then we get the opportunity to take some of these scriptures that first blush seem a little challenging and uh, bring some clarity to them. So glad you brought that up. All right. Um, Question from Robert, who wants to know, uh, regarding what we're seeing, not just in the United States, but globally, a lot of uh, local businesses basically not being able to hire more people and even shut down. Do you foresee this leading up to the black horse described in Revelation 6? One of our thoughts in a scriptural explanation. The short answer, Robert, is no, and just like when we started the broadcast with in regards to prophetic significance, understand that while we do see parallels and patterns of things in the world leading up to this, times of war or government incompetence or any combination of the two have always led to these things throughout history, and it was no more bringing us closer to the tribulation than just the passage of time itself. Right. When we're talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we're not, uh, you know, quoting with our red bandana saying, well, he was talking about some sick horse is going to get us. <laughs> these four horsemen of the apocalypse <laughs> Tombstone are, reference there yeah, for those you are a appeal yeah. to the four seals, a a symbolic representation of the four seals of the first salvo of plagues during the tribulation period. The first, the white horse, is a representation of the rise of the Antichrist. We see through his use of language like having a white horse being visually similar 
to the Messiah, but his method is what sets him apart, the bow without arrows. And this is, of course, in reference to the Old Testament, someone who promises and threatens, but never delivers. And, of course, on it goes. The uh, second plague was the second seal, the red horseman who was given a mighty sword, a weapon of war, and used as such in Scripture to take peace from the earth that men should kill one another. Now, note, it doesn't mean war, as in global conflict yet, the Antichrist just made peace, but we see civil unrest that's going to have implications later on. The third plague, it was a black horse with a pair of scales in the rider's hand. Scales not like as in lizard skin, but Uh, as balances. And that was a reference to an economic aspect. He uses Roman measurements, speaking to John in the context of the culture at the time, but he says, a quart of wheat for a denarius, so a day's wage is a loaf of bread, yeah. and three loaves, three meals of barley, inferior bread, for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Obviously, there's some symbolism there, yeah. but it's describing, as you were noting, Robert, economic woes, which usually, if you were in the United States in the year 2019, uh, always happen when there's civil unrest, because businesses aren't just being uh, deprived of customers. They're getting customers, but not ones that are paying for it. They're getting, uh, I guess, uh, traffic, but not seeing any benefit from it. Some are even being burned down and destroyed and looted. We can see that tying into the second plague, but we don't want to, again, read too much into it. We just note this will be a fallout of, and this is foreshadowing of how I'm handling the text, take of it what you will, the consequences of the Antichrist rise to power, right. which then culminates with the green horse or the... Um, how that sick horse is going to yeah. get us. Yeah, the yeah. fourth horse, which is whose rider is death and Hades. Spanish is worse than your English. Ignorant, ignorant wretch. <laughs> no, yeah, that was the point that was being made. A quarter of the world's population will die as a result of not war conflict or nuclear fallout, as some have tried to say, but through disease, through violence, through animals, yeah. and through men killing one another. Yeah. So the spiritual state of this world and the Antichrist rise to power will definitely be shown glowingly on CNN, and they won't even have fire in the background saying it's mostly successful. No, it will look successful, but it will cost a lot of blood. And we see most of the blood that will be shed at this time is explained in the fifth seal, which we note in sequence as a fallout of this as well. And that's why we say the Antichrist is going to bring in a false peace. Uh, It's going to look good on video. Internationally, there won't be nations marching to war yet, but a lot of people are going to be uh, showing themselves for who they are now that the spirit that is restraining evil will be taken away, 2 Thessalonians 2. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. There's uh, a a mindset that says, oh, when the Antichrist comes to power, uh, everything's going to be peaceful and beautiful, and that's why everybody's going to follow him. Uh, No, I I don't think things are going to be peaceful and beautiful based upon this, but uh, people are going to be so deceived... If you think uh, that deception is running rampant in our uh, major media today, amplify that uh, by satanic deception on top of it all. And uh, boy, you've you've got a uh, world that is starting to fall apart. It's just going to be packaged in a way that the average person is going to go, oh, this is really great. Since those Christians disappeared, life has gotten a whole lot better. And isn't this Antichrist guy doing something wonderful? On TV, at least. Yeah. But uh, tying... Well, who watches TV anymore? On the news. But tying it back to your question, Robert, again, 
it's no more a fulfillment of prophecy or bringing us closer to tribulation period than the passage of time itself. It's obviously horrible, but note that's the reason why the church exists, to help people who are in need. And if you know local fellowships that could use the kind of donations, if you're not being pinched right now, please help those who are purposefully setting themselves aside for that. Our church has a local meal ministry, and we have lots of connections towards people who can get you meaningful employment, and we're not alone in this. Support your local fellowships and their purpose in that as well. Yeah. Not just sharing God's Word, but God's heart. Um, two questions that kind of dovetail into a clarification before we get into the nitty-gritty. Uh, two names were mentioned. I won't mention them because of the answer to the question, but two specific pastors and their ministries were asked on the broadcast uh, if we approve of them or not. Now, I'm not mentioning them by name, and here's why. If an individual, and again, we don't necessarily have a problem with naming names, but we accomplish far more in citing out the positives or negatives of a teaching than a teacher. Right. Because if it's a good thing, what have you been pointed to? What are you going to look for? Anyone who has that name. But if we affirm a teaching as scriptural and as sound biblically, then you'll seek any teacher who approves those doctrines. Right. Likewise, if you see a false teacher and you're just told his name and we say, yeah, don't follow that guy, what have you been told? That name. You see that name, you're going to go, ooh, cringe. Yeah. But if, on the other hand, you see a false teaching, it doesn't matter what name's attached to it, you'll be discerning in what they're saying. Yeah. That's what we want to encourage. So with that then being said, um, the two ministries, one is obviously uh, hardcore Calvinist, and the other is hardcore... Um, I wouldn't say Armenian, but the once saved, always saved, free grace teaching. Uh one of them is which you have personal ties with, the question from Kurt. We don't even necessarily have to mention the name, but just for the sake of clarity, John MacArthur's church. Yeah. Um, you were taught as one of his seminaries, were you not? Yeah, well, uh, most of my uh, seminary classes I took at Grace Community Church. I had the chance to meet John on a number of occasions, played golf with his dad, uh, had uh, that level of relationship with him. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are some real differences that, uh, that we would have uh, with uh, his teaching. As we mentioned, he is uh, a pretty dyed-in-the-wool five-point Calvinist. We've discussed that issue on the broadcast. If you've got questions about what that's, that's all about and why we differ from it, we can certainly explore that. Uh, one of the biggest, though, is his doctrine of lordship salvation. Uh, his book, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus, came out, and uh, he made a very bold statement that unless every area of your life was surrendered to Christ, uh, you weren't saved, that you needed to have a, uh, an experience where your life was first transformed, uh, and then you would be brought to salvation. And it really is in harmony with a lot of teachings of five-point Calvinism. Uh, we disagree with that teaching, don't want to be too simplistic about it, because in essence what it comes down to is uh, saying that you've got to get yourself to the place where you don't need saving anymore, and then Jesus can save you. And uh, they would say, well, no, it's God who does all of that. Uh, it, you know, he has to, to choose you, and, and, and then he's going to draw you, and part of this drawing work is the transforming work of your life, where you go through, say, uh, embodying the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, and then uh, by becoming a disciple, a committed follower of Jesus, only then you can be saved. 
Well, you know, I'm all for being a committed follower and a disciple of Jesus, but the Bible does indicate that there are those who have a saving relationship with God who aren't following Jesus as a committed follower. A great example of this would be the church at Corinth, where uh, if you read through 1 Corinthians, uh, you know, Paul starts out by saying that they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They were lacking no spiritual gift as they awaited the Lord's return. However... From then on, the entire book, uh, almost without exception, is correction, 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 rebuke, rebuke, rebuke. And not for uh, minor issues yeah, either. Uh, for instance, one of the issues that had to be corrected was the idea of a man in the church who was living in a uh, sexually immoral relationship with his own mother, uh, something that even the Gentiles found horrible, and the Corinthians weren't doing anything about it. This is not what I they would were call so tolerant. Uh, a, a disciple-oriented relationship with Jesus. All things weren't yielded to the Lordship of Christ. They needed conversion. Uh, they needed to, uh, to turn back to the Lord and repent, but never are they dealt with as non-believers. Yeah, the uh, only time that's really addressed in the New Testament is Galatians, and that's addressing a plethora of churches that were replacing the gospel itself for work, interestingly yeah. enough. So, uh, but so, then there's so, people... So for that reason, um, uh, we would differ with that teaching. We do not teach lordship salvation. Uh, we teach that, uh, in a sense, it's true. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that he is God and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Uh, Jesus did go on and talk about the fact that it is by, uh, I guess, maybe Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, gives us our point of view on what salvation and sanctification are all about. Uh, it says, uh, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, this is how we get into the kingdom, right? right. Not by anything that we do but only on the basis of what God has done for us. But then verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, not by good works, but for good works, that, uh, that uh, you know, we, we, we should walk, walk in, in the, the works that God prepared for us. So, you know, we're not saved by good works. We're not saved by cleaning up our lives or becoming committed disciples or going through rituals. These are all things we do after we are saved because we are saved, but they are not a precondition for salvation. That's a, a pretty important distinction to make. But then on the other stat, there would be people who would react so much to that legalistic approach to then do the other stat where it's free grace and once saved, always saved, which basically makes the approach that, well, if you pray to prayer, that is salvation. If you can point to a time at any time in your life, regardless of whether you're Charles Templeton now or, uh, you know, fill in the uh, horrible state in which someone's claimed and proactively saying departed from the faith, they would say, oh, well, if they affirm that teaching, is that also unbiblical? Well, yeah, because it would go beyond Scripture. Yeah, Charles Templeton was a fellow who was a preacher with Billy Graham, fell away from the faith, wrote a book called Farewell to God, where he espoused atheism and mocked the gospel of Jesus Christ. And would, would we say, because he prayed a prayer or made some kind of profession of faith or was used by God in a certain way, that that means that even if you're espousing atheism, you're saved. Yeah, and that's the point. So if someone's coming to you and either treats the gospel too lightly or redefined the gospel so heavily that people can't lift it, <laughs> yeah. to make a reference to something else Jesus said, you're in both camps apart from the truth. And right. we want to make sure that we fit in the line, not of the middle, 
because the middle isn't any more virtuous than any other mistake. We want the truth. And sometimes, again, on the road, it could be proper to drive on the right or the left side of the road, not just the dead middle. There's right. no virtue in neutrality. Right. And the problem gets to be everybody's got their pet verses that they bring up to support these points of view. But, uh, you know, our take on this, as far as especially the doctrine of salvation is concerned, is that the clear teaching has to take precedence over the obscure or the controversial teaching. And there's really no controversy at all about Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Uh, you can't really get around the fact that it is by grace, God's unmerited favor, that we're saved. Our part is to believe, and even God gives us the power to believe. Uh, it's not by works, lest any man should boast. But we are saved to a working faith, to a working relationship with God that does change our lives. So having that balance uh, is really important to have. All right. Um, question from Kurt as well, who in Matthew uh, twelve thirty six that he'll bring every idle word into judgment. What does an idle word mean, like uh, taking the Lord's name in vain or profanity and stuff? Now, idle is literally in the English Careless. term. Yeah. yeah. Um, just things that have no meaning. And it's not saying that if I don't have meaning behind every word, if I'm just mumbling and stuff, that's going to somehow be judged by God, or, oh, my words are idolatrous. That's not the word. It's referring to the things that we say, all of it will be brought into judgment. And if you want a comparison to this, uh, go to Ecclesiastes 12.4, where it says that God will bring every deed, every word into right. judgment, whether right. good or evil. So note that point. It's just a little linguistic oversight. Um, we but, got Yeah, but he said, uh, he went on to say, by your words you'll be justified and your words will be condemned. Uh, this is talking about the judgment of non-believers. Yeah. We're not saved because we speak certain words, but if you uh, want to stand before God, and uh, like a lot of people these days say, I think I'm going to heaven because I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, I think I, I keep the Ten Commandments. And, uh, well, okay, uh, let's just uh, take, uh, you know, thou shalt uh, not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You ever done that? Well, if you did that, you're out. Uh, you're not going to make it. Uh, honor your father and mother. You ever said anything derogatory or disrespectful about your parents? You're out. You're not going to make it. Uh, out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, the mouth speaks. So uh, we do see the condition of the unsaved. Now, we aren't saved because we have perfect speech. We aren't saved because we've said certain words in a certain order. God looks on the heart. Yeah. So uh, very clear that Jesus is talking and giving a heavenly heads up to those who don't know him. All right. Uh we, I think we can rapid-fire a few of these, but I'll make a side point on this one because I think it's important. Uh, if God is neither male or female, is Yah the masculine and Way the feminine? How should we treat God's name? Uh, it's one of many, but the covenant name of God, the Tetragrammaton YHVH, notice all consonants, we don't know how it was pronounced. So to compartmentalize that and say there's some significance to male and female, uh, that's not the Bible, that's Rajneesh and yeah. his uh, hippie movement. He made that point of emphasis that God was both male and female, and you see a lot of cult groups today emphasizing the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Yahweh literally means becoming one, and again, we don't know how it was originally pronounced, out of respect for it, see, not taking the name of the Lord in vain, not doing evil in his yeah, name. Yeah, it's just the he four Hebrew letters, yod heth vow heth And it's emphasizing... And, and, and you can't really separate them out. Yeah, the it's... Yah, as we see in Scripture, 
is shorthand for that. And it's emphasizing his eternal nature that literally means becoming one. Um, understand it's not a joining of feminine or masculine terms. When God refers to his persons through masculine titles, say for example, the Father and the Son, then we need to be careful not to read female supremacism into Scripture. Uh, there's also this uh, confusion where people, again, saying, well, God's male and female, like we're made in the image of God, so both of his aspects, the feminine and the masculine, are reflected. That's not what it means to be made in the image of God. God's not biological. John chapter 4, God is spirit, and those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. When it says we're made in God's image, it's not referring to our biological characteristics or our chromosomes. It's identifying our capacity for relationships, our proclivities, propensities, Whichever. It's like uh, we're playing match game here. Yeah, towards <laughs> creative work and, of course, <laughs> yeah, to um, desire and pursue relationships and, of course, to be moral beings in ways that animals and nature are not. But the point being made is that we reflect his characteristics, not his uh, physical attributes, because he's not a physical. So the point being made is that if someone's uh, emphasizing God's biological traits to get you know, virtue signaling points with whatever way the culture's going. Yeah. Uh, a, that's kind of demeaning towards women. We can go into that maybe on a later date, but on the other hand as well, it's very disrespectful towards God, so be careful with yeah. that. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it reminds me of Mark Twain's famous statement that in the beginning, uh, God made man in his own image and likeness, and ever since then we've been trying to return the favor. Uh, when we get into these kind of conversations, we're lowering God down to uh, the categories of being that we understand. So... Um, good thing to avoid that. All right. Um, is Genesis 27:35 the inspiration for Exodus 20:15? No, not at all. Exodus 20 in its entirety, the 10 commandments as well as the law is based on God's character, not a uh, observing human behavior and saying, "Okay, don't do this, don't do that." For those who don't know, Ex Genesis 27 is in reference to Jacob uh, cheating Esau out of his birthright, stealing the birthright. It wasn't an inspiration. Anything that regards God's nature or morality, that's our basis for law, not God observing us and going, well, that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. God never says, oops. Yeah, uh, we do. But yeah. the point being made is that it's no more inspiration than anything else. Be careful with that mindset. Um, prayer request from uh, Ben, who wants uh, his brother James and his family to be prayed for. Uh, his mother passed away. We've got a few seconds. Why don't we do that? Yeah, Father, we bring Ben's family before you. And Lord, we pray for James and the rest of the family, Lord, in this time of, of uh, loss of that relationship. But Father, uh, I thank you, Lord, that uh, because of who you are, uh, we're going to live forever in your presence. And I pray that that message of comfort would make a real difference and that those even in Ben's family that don't know you would be drawn to have that gift of everlasting life you give to all who will receive it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you for the questions. We'll be seeing you all again on the next broadcast. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.